Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Week Ahead. I'm Tony Nash. Uh, I wanted to thank Albert and Sam for joining us um, to take a look at The Week Ahead. Uh, before we get started, please uh, like and subscribe uh, on this channel, and please, please, please comment, ask us questions, let us know uh, additional information you think we should have. Um, we get back to every single one of those, and we want to make sure that you guys are uh, happy with what we're talking about today. So today, there's a lot that's happened over the past week and even over the weekend that we want to get into. We've got three topics here, but we're, there's going to be a lot of overlap in these. So I'm just going to introduce these, and then we're going to have a, a pretty open discussion. The first is uh, Biden's Saudi trip. Um, ended up being kind of a disappointment, and there really is no immediate spare capacity, which is kind of a surprise to no one. But um, but it happened and we'll, and we'll cover it. Um, next is the US dollar and what does the appreciated US dollar mean? We've already seen a fallout in Sri Lanka and other places which we've talked about for weeks, but, but where is that going and when will that end? Um, next is FOMC expectations. What will the Fed do, uh, especially given CPI, PPI uh, data? And we have to also keep in mind that we have an election coming up in November. So it's really hard for the Fed to keep the heat on uh, when we have an election coming in November, or that would be a normal election year. So, so Albert and Sam, thanks so much uh, for taking your Sunday afternoon to talk through to us. Let's first get into Biden's trip. Albert, can you give us a little bit of the kind of geopolitical backdrop for us? Help us understand, like, what were the expectations and, and what actually happened? Well, I mean, the expectations were that Biden goes into the Saudi Arabians in the Middle East and cuts a deal for them to increase production and capacity and name your whatever little policy that they're talking about. Um, the reality was Biden wanted to get away from the PPI number uh, and the CPI. They're just atrocious. So he decided it's a normal thing that people, you know, politicians leave and go overseas so they don't have to deal with it. So, you know, they, they, he, he went over to Saudi Arabia, meets MBS, which was already a problem considering the, the, the comments that he had, you know, for the election. But you know, his goal for upping production by the Middle East and OPEC was just, it was a fantasy. It was nothing more than a PR gimmick as, you know, in my opinion, that the Fed's been in playing in futures and crushing the price of oil. So it was one of these, you know, look here, this is what I'm doing on the grand stage and oil prices are falling. But in reality, uh, they weren't really connected. So were there, were there really expectations in the administration that there would be additional immediate capacity? Did they really think that that would be on the table? I don't think so, to be honest with you, Tony. I, you know, I, like I said, this is a PR game that they're playing now, specifically because, like you mentioned, elections are coming up and their intent is to save uh, the Democratic majority in the Senate. The House is lost, but, you know, okay. the Senate is what they're eyeing up. So, okay. in my opinion, this is all PR games. Okay, so, but the PR game that is really hard for me to understand is the president, regardless of who it is, okay, the president going to a place that is an ally, Saudi Arabia is pretty much an ally to the US, and coming away with nothing. One would think that the Secretary of State and the, you know, NATSEC guys, other guys would have gone in first to make sure that we could announce something positive and nothing happened. So it seems to me that, uh, you know, there is foreign policy disaster after foreign policy disaster with this administration. Is this, I mean, I don't want to be putting my own view on it, but is it that too? Of course. I mean, we've had, we've had just multiple disasters in foreign policy, but even from the Saudi Arabia's perspective, who's their biggest, who's their biggest client at the moment is China. China. 
So yeah. why 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 do they have to listen to Biden, who's made the Biden administration that's made unbelievable mistakes in foreign policy, and it's actually risked their security more than anything else? He's taken the foot off of the Iranians. The Saudis have to deal with that. You know, the Russians are, you know, in their own little world of adventures. But there's no there's no real stability in the Middle East, and the United mm -hmm. States under Biden doesn't really show that there is you know anyone stepping up to the plate. Right, and so that and that's a kind of a, a leadership issue. Whether or not the U.S. is there main customer, the U.S. has been their main advocate in the Middle East and around the world, or one of their main advocates, right? Yeah. And so that, that's, the, that's the big loss that I see is you have a president going in, not getting an agreement with a huge entourage for agreements that should have been done before they arrived. And it just makes, it just makes them look like, like they have no power. Sam, is that how you read it? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's two things that I, I think we, you know, the U.S. generally gave to Saudi Arabia, and that was global clout and weapons, right? Yep. And, you know, the second part is probably very important to the Saudis going forward, right? Because there's only so many places that manufacture weapons that are decent, and that's the U.S. to a certain degree, Russia, China, and basically Turkey. Right. And so you can you can kind of buy weapons from those places. Um, guess what? That was a tool that really wasn't flexed at all. And if you're going to flex, you know, policy power, that probably should have been flexed a little bit. And, you know, honestly, it doesn't appear to have been at all. Uh, so I would say to, to Albert's point exactly, you know, we're not the largest customer when it comes to oil by a mile. Right. That, that's just true. Uh, but we are the largest supplier to them of their national defense. And that, here's, uh, that, that here's the thing that I that I don't understand is with U.S. production, we can be the marginal price setter for global oil prices. But we pull that card off of the table by disabling our, our domestic manufacturers. Is that a fair thing to say? I, I, well, I would say that that's the muscle that we're kind of flexing right now, right, to a certain, to a certain extent. Okay. Tell me more about that. How are we flexing that? Well, we're flexing it. You know, I, I'm not saying it's good flex, right? Uh, <laughs> we're flexing it uh, by not doing anything, right? So we are basically the ones holding up the global price of oil, right? OPEC, honestly, has pumped exactly what they said they would pump, you know, with a little variability. And they don't have much marginal capacity. The marginal capacity uh, was passed to fracking a long time ago. I mean, this was not, this is not a, this is not a shocking revelation. Yep. Uh, so when you're the global incremental supply that can flip on in a relatively fast manner, and you say we are not going to do that, period, and we're not going to in any way supplement uh, the regulatory overhangs and the capital overhangs, then guess what? You're going to end up with a global shortage of oil and distillates. So Right. So, so what happens to crude prices with the Saudis saying, okay, maybe capacity in 2027? What do we see in the short term with crude prices? I mean, with the with a recession looming supposedly, you know, whether that's real or not remains to be seen. Right. So, you know, and we had a good retail sales figure on Friday, pretty strong. So, what do we see happen with with crude prices in the short term? Is there is there you know is there upward pressure on crude prices, or are we kind of in this in this range? I think we're in this range of 90 to 115, just simply because of the reality. See, I want to I want to differentiate uh, pre-election versus post-election, right? 
Uh, pre-election, we're definitely in a range of 90 to 115. They're not, the Fed's not going to let the price of oil get to the point where people are paying six, seven dollars a gallon to the tank. So that's, that's, that's first and foremost. Uh, after that, <laughs> hands off uh, who knows what's going to happen then because europe europe's going through an energy crisis with gas there you know the price of oil is probably going to go up just because the green deals that the biden administration are intent on passing are going to ramp up at right at the election and just afterwards so i i, I after after the election i could i could see 130 140. okay sam any near-term change in crude prices because of this no well, near term, near term, I actually, you know, I, to Albert's point, I, you know, ninety dollars a barrel seems to be kind of the low here. Right? I don't think we're going to go much lower, and you know, that's a combination of you know DXY at one hundred eight, which you know DXY at one hundred eight is uh, atypical to oil right. remaining elevated. Right. Um, so if you begin to have a dollar breaking into the back half of the year you know that's kind of the post-election story for okay. yeah, and i think albert would um backing up on that part mm -hmm. uh, if you begin you know you begin to see that breaking guess what that's tailwind that makes 130 140 so relatively reasonable but you call it 90 to 150 absolutely not a problem here okay. and you probably creep back towards the upper end of that 115 because you've seen two things you've seen gasoline prices come down which means demand is going to remain resilient, if not pick up on the margins. Yep. Mm -hmm. And guess what? That flows downhill. So I would say, yeah, oil prices, gasoline prices, yeah, they, they look good right now. I mean, I saw a three handle on okay. gasoline close to my house. That's not going to last. That's not going to be no. consistent. Right. So, okay. So, Sam, you mentioned the dollar at 108. We hit 109 uh, last week. Why is the dollar pushing higher, guys? <laughs> I can tell you why, and I've been tell me, I, tell me. I, I've been adamant about this. Is Yellen told European counterparts that she was going to drive the dollar up to one ten and above? She has. I mean, she's done this in twenty thirteen before. There's nothing, nothing new under the sun. It's part of her playbook. She knows what she's doing. She can even go up another ten percent. Now, what that does to emerging markets? Oh, God help them at the moment. But still, the dollar is the most effective tool in their eyes for inflation uh, busting, at least short term. And so how yes. far are we going? I think we go up to 112 to 115. Okay. Over what time horizon? The next month? The next three the months? Oh, well, yeah. I think it's in the next month. I think they want to get this over and done with so they can pivot uh, starting September, you know, stop the rate hikes. And, you know, and, and on top of that, uh, this is something for uh, Sam that could talk about the Fed is I think that Powell probably loses the majority of votes in the Fed for Fed members come October. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. I want to talk about that, but let's let's finish <laughs> up with the dollar first, okay? So this is good. Um, okay, so with the dollar, help me understand the what's happening in the euro dollar markets right now. Okay, we've seen the euro dollar fall as the dollar rises. What's actually happening there, and why? Uh, me? Okay, I can go. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, you know. The as global, I've been adamant about this also. As global trade slows down, the use, the need and use of euro dollars becomes less so. And a lot of people sit there and mistake that as the dollar is dying and and gold is coming back and whatever name your crypto that's supposed to be the next reserve currency. But that's just the reality of the moment. Is they are purposely trying to kill demand. When you kill demand the euro dollar starts to fall because there's less need of it. And that's just, that's just the simple, most simple 
basic uh, explanation that I can give you at the moment. Okay, so Sam, that is non-U.S. demand in U.S. dollars, right? Yeah, that's that's a dollar-denominated uh, non-U.S. debt. Okay, and so the largest portion of the Euro-dollar market is that still in Europe? No, no, it's no still, that's it, it. Still flows through Europe, right? Okay, but it, it's it's a it's a much larger market than simply Europe. Okay, I think the so it tells me there's a outside of the U.S. There's a slowdown generally. Is that fair to say? Yes. Oh yeah. Oh Absolutely. yeah. Oh. I mean, and we've talked <laughs> yeah. about this before. Europe, Europe has big problems. We saw China's numbers not last week, which are obviously overreported anyway. You know, so uh, Japan's having problems. You know, so so all the major markets are are having issues. So the euro dollar is just a proxy for what's actually happening in those markets through trade and through the the demand for actually U.S. dollar currency spent outside of the U.S. Correct. Yes, yes in very simplistic terms. Yes, that's exactly. Okay, good. Right. Anything else, you know, for the viewers here, like anything else that you guys want to add on euro dollars, just so they can pay attention to things. Not really. That's a very good, just simplistic, basic Great. understanding of euro dollars. I mean, you know, like we can get into the whole mechanics of euro dollars, but it's so big that it'll take okay. up an entire episode, you know? So Okay, good. And, very and good. Very, very into the weeds very, very quickly. Good. Yeah. So if anybody's watching has questions about euro dollars, let us know. We'll get Sam and Albert in on this and, and help them answer the questions. All right. Okay. Finally, FOMC. Okay. We saw CPI uh, hit to the high side. We saw PPI hit to the high side last week. A lot of talk about 100 basis point hike. Sam had a newsletter out that said, could be 100, could be 75. And, and Albert obviously thinks that there's going to be a pivot in September. So Sam, do you want to kick this one off? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I, I do want to point out that I, I said, you know, there was a, there's a difference between should and will uh, in the newsletter. And the, and the notion was, you know, should the Fed go 100 now? Will they? Uh, probably, unless the University of Michigan uh, survey comes in light and it came in light, right? So you're 75 basis points now. It's that simple. Um, okay, great. Straightforward, uh, right? The Fed probably wanted to have the flexibility for 100, uh, but when they tied themselves to something so stupid as the University of Michigan survey, <laughs> and it falls, uh, I, I mean, it, you know what, Tim? The funny thing is that you say that is that is exactly what they look at. Sort of making their policy I, decisions. I the know. only thing they look at. I mean, was, University it, of Michigan. But it's like I know they say. I know they. I know they look at it. But the problem was they said it out loud. Like you don't <laughs> say that out loud. I, I, you know, that's the that's the mysterious part to me. Like, it's a survey of a very small, you know, subsection yeah. that is basically never been tied to reality at all yeah. across any time frame whatsoever. And like, yeah, yeah, no, we're, we went so well, it's like, because it's we like making afraid. policy based on Atlanta GDP now, right? It's like, you know, <laughs> a lot of these things are proxies of small survey sizes of, you know, whatever. And with error terms that interact with each other, yes. Right. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of people who watch markets see these indexes like, like the University of Michigan index come out and they think that it means something, but it kind of does, but it kind of doesn't. And so I always recommend people, you have to understand these indexes. You have to understand what these releases mean. Um, yeah. You have to understand the methodology. If you're going to make investment decisions based upon these things, you have to understand what they are. And as you dig down beneath these things, like University of Michigan, 
was put out, what, 30 years ago initially. The methodology <laughs> hasn't changed much since then. So if you imagine the technology and the capabilities 30 years ago and they carry that forward, it's pretty light. It's pretty light. A lot of these things are pretty light. Yeah, but they want it like that, though, Tony. They don't want to update their stuff because they don't want transparency. You know, they, they want these. Oh, no, seriously. Like, it's if true. If you want to make massage the numbers, you go with what you know, what you know is flawed, and that's just what you go with, you know? Right. Yeah. I had a quick question for Sam. I had a quick question for Sam. Um, I think, like I said, I think that they're going to pivot in September after a 75 basis point rate hike now and whatever PPI coming and CPI coming in in August. But um, I, I don't think this is the right decision for them to, to pivot this early, you know, because they're, they're expecting demand to come down. And I see no demand coming down anywhere at the moment. So what happens, you know, if they sit there and try to pivot for September, October, November election time, and then January, you know, December comes along and demand is sky high again. You know, what does that do to inflation for 2023? Yeah. Oh, so I think it's complicated, right? Because we buy, a, it's kind of the goods versus services problem going into mm -hmm. the back half of the year, right? We'll, we'll have plenty of goods, you know, parentheses, crap, um, to, you know, on store shelves in Target for toys and whatnot, because that part of the supply chain is solved. Uh, what's going to be persistent on the CPI front is going to be shelter, which we all know is six months lagged and is going to be a problem for the rest of the year. And there's nothing they can do about that because their methodology is, again, stupid. Uh, so there's nothing they can do on the prints from here out, right? They're, they're going to have prints that are sitting at, you know, 30 basis points plus just because of shelter and its weight in core. That's going to be a big problem for them on the CPI front. Uh, so if they pivot, they're basically going to have to say that, you know, look at headline. It, it absolutely plummeted, you know, gasoline. You know. Will we get a core Whatever. reading? Will we get a core reading X energy, food and shelter? Will, will we start quoting that? I mean, yeah, I, I, that's what I've started looking at for the exact reason of trying to find the pivot, because yeah. eventually that will be the metric that they are forced to go to if they want to pivot. Yep. It will be, it'll be, you know, Supercore. And guess what? The, you know, call it Supercore. Uh, Supercore doesn't look that great right now, but it could look pretty, could look pretty interesting if you begin to have gasoline coming down, you know, 40% month over month, which what the next one's going to say, or 25% month over month. Uh, so you're going to continue to have some volatility on the headline CPI front, which is basically what the Fed is going to have to look at in order to pivot. Okay, so can I ask what happened with gasoline prices? We still have 94% or whatever utilization. Crude prices haven't come down that much. So why have we seen a 30% fall in gasoline prices over the past three or four weeks? Recession fears. Yeah. That's it. It's sensitive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. It's exactly. Just it's just it's just the narrative of recessions coming and trying to uh, kill demand based on that. It's just like I said, PR games. Nothing okay. more. And, and the one thing that I want to point out that I think is really important to kind of consider for Albert's point of a pivot is equities tend to move in, call it a six-month precursor. And what you've seen since July 1 is an absolute rip in home builders and a relative squashing of utilities. And if people were betting on a longer recession in a longer Fed cycle, XLU would be the buy and home builders would be the short. 
And that that has simply not been the case so far. Very interesting, Samurai. When do you think that Yellen, this is for both of you, when do you think that Yellen gives up on the 2% inflation number and says 4% is where is the Goldilocks hmm. level? <laughs> you Samurai, know you first. It's a great yeah. question. I don't think I don't think she goes. I don't think they go four percent, but I think they say, and they've begun to do this. If you go back over the last six months of speeches, that two to two point five is fine, right? Still, it's going to be higher. So, so they're creeping it up. They're creeping yeah. it up, right? Of course, but, they're creeping it up. But I don't think I don't think it'll be four. You know, I think you know it'll be you know between two and three percent is a reasonable target. Blah blah blah. Given. And they'll go into like, you know, they'll go into things like, you know, because of the way that we measure CPI, you know, two to three percent, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, there'll be there'll be some fun times. I think if they did that, Albert, I think it would be after the election. Oh, of course. They're not I don't doing think they anything. Could do anything before. They're not doing they're not doing anything that's going to trip up uh, operations, save the Democratic Senate. You know what I mean? They're just right. not going to. Yeah, I think people are already really upset about uh, inflation. Um, companies are starting to report or expected report numbers down, their earnings down. And so it's hurting everybody. And yeah, but every, uh, everything they're doing is just going to make inflation worse in 2023. But it's going to come back with a vengeance because unemployment is still, you know, unemployment is going to start ticking up. Nobody you know, cares stimulus, because stimulus. it's not an election year. Nobody yeah, cares course. because it's not an election year. Stimulus yeah. checks um, will flow again. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be fun. It's possible. The, the one, the one thing again. This goes to Albert's point on will a potential September pivot be a mistake? I mean, Pepsi, Pepsi's report this week showed a one percent organic volume growth and twelve percent pricing. Oh they pushed twelve percent pricing, and consumers and had, took it, and had and had volumes creep up one percent. Yeah. Guess what? If companies too. can get away with that. They are going to all day long, and they will, in fact, make a fortune on the backside of this. Of course. I mean, it's it, paying attention to that. You know, demand destruction has not crept through yet. If you can push that kind of price and not have volumes fall, guess what? Well, the biggest thing, of course, and this is a no-brainer, but prices are not going back to where they were. Correct. They no. are not going back to no. where they were. This Nothing. is not a temporary inflation thing. And... It may have started that way, but the way we responded to it was completely wrong. And it just baked in these, you know, supply side things that flowed all the way through to the retail side. And wage inflation it, alone. Wage inflation alone is probably Yeah, but but I think we're I think we're gonna see more on the say low medium side of wages. I, you know, I think the um, in order to keep up with a 12% price hike in Pepsi. Um, you know, you're going to have to see more action on the wage side. Mm -hmm. Granted, that was mostly free old line. I'm just going to throw that out there. That was mostly, that was mostly salty snacks. Uh, <laughs> and it might have had something to do, honestly, it might have had something to do with more frequent gasoline stops. Yeah. Uh, gasoline, more, yeah. you buy more chips. But yeah. I, I wouldn't read too much into that, right? I, I do think that their ability to push price was pretty good. Great. Uh, but okay. again, yes. I, I, to your point, it's a step function in pricing yep. and therefore it's a step function in inflation. Great. Okay, guys, 60 seconds. What do you see for the week ahead? Albert, go. Commodities, rebounding commodities. I'm, I'm long wheat. I think there's a problem problematic globally for wheat. I want to see uh, wheat prices uh, start to track back up, to be honest with you. Same thing okay. with oil. So softs and energy. 
Yep. Okay, Sam. Yeah, watching that, uh, watching the inflation trade, um, honestly, um, and I think it's very similar to Albert's point on oil and wheat. Uh, I'll be watching the relative sector distribution pretty closely here, looking for those uh, like XLU versus the housing guys uh, versus some of the other trades uh, to see what you know people putting to, uh, people actually putting money to work are uh, really uh, thinking, not just by it. Very good, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for taking your Monday afternoon. Thanks, everybody, for watching our late week ahead. And, guys, thanks. Have a great weekend. Thanks, guys.